This is Radio Stockdale. Welcome to Ethics in the Naval Warrior. I'm your host, Michael Sears, at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. Our guest is a professor of philosophy at the University of Richmond, where he also served as the founding coordinator of the Philosophy, Politics, Economics, and Law program, an undergraduate major that takes an interdisciplinary approach to normative questions of law and public policy. He is the author of a recently published book, Philosophy and International Law, A Critical Introduction as well as numerous articles and book chapters on topics including the moral conduct of war, secession, and civil disobedience. He has been a visiting faculty fellow at Princeton University, a visiting fellow at the National University of Singapore, and he served as a fellow here at the Stockdale Center. Welcome, Dr. David Lefkowitz. Thanks so much, Michael, for having me. I'm delighted to be here. It is great to have you here. We have a rather dense topic today, and it's critical, I think, for both young naval officers and, quite frankly, senior naval officers also. We're talking about the morality and legality of war. Let's jump right into it here. You know, the conduct of war is subject to both moral and legal rules. For example, rules about who is a legitimate target of war and who's not. What is the relationship between those moral and legal rules? One of the questions that uh, I'm interested in is is what the relationship is between those uh, two rules uh, or two sets of rules. Do they have the same content, for example, right? Do they uh, permit the same kinds of conduct and forbid the same kind of conduct? Uh, so as a specific example, do they permit attacks on the same people, right? So say enemy combatants while also prohibiting attacks on the same people, let's say non-combatants, Uh, And if they do, right, if the two sets of rules really say the same thing, then why do we need two sets of rules? Why a morality of war and also a legality or or law of war? So it turns out that the answer to that question is a matter of dispute. And uh, maybe let me jump in, uh, if I may, Michael, by by kind of stating one position in that dispute. And that is a position that's most closely associated with the political philosopher Michael Walzer. Walzer holds that the content of the two sets of rules are uh, the same, that the law of war mirrors uh, the morality of war. So the morality of war permits combatants on all sides of a conflict to intentionally attack one another, regardless of whether their side has a moral or a legal right to go to war. And the law of war takes the same position. And then likewise for non-combatant immunity, right? Uh, On Walzer's account, the morality of war prohibits intentionally targeting non-combatants, and likewise, so does the law of war. So what then is the purpose of the law of war? Well, it's to publicly communicate the morality of war to all of the actors engaged in the conflict, right? So the law here acts like a big megaphone, broadcasting our moral requirements. You said the relationship between the morality and law of war is a matter of dispute. So are there some philosophers and legal theorists who think that the law of war does not necessarily mirror the morality of war? Yes, that's, uh, that's absolutely correct. Uh, and in fact, that uh, school of uh, philosophers has been kind of uh, ascendant, I would say, really over the last uh, couple of decades. Uh, and they're often referred to as revisionist just war theorists. And so their argument starts by challenging uh, Walzer's take on the morality of war, which in fact Walzer refers to uh, sometimes as the legalist paradigm. On the legalist paradigm, posing a threat to the life of another is uh, both necessary 
um, and, well, sometimes we should say, uh, sufficient to uh, justify the use of defensive force. Uh, but the revisionists, uh, somebody like uh, Jeff McMahon, who's a professor at Oxford University, argue that posing a threat to the life of another is neither necessary nor sufficient to make somebody liable to defensive force. So let's just start with the idea that it's not uh, sufficient to pose a threat to somebody that you're liable to defensive force. If a bank robber enters a bank and he pulls out a gun, right, and he threatens to shoot the bank teller unless the bank teller gives him money, and there's a security guard in the bank who then pulls out a gun to uh, prohibit the right to prevent the bank robber from using force against the bank teller and the other innocent third parties who are, are in the bank. I think our intuition is that while the security guard has a moral right, right, and the law says is legally permitted to use a potentially lethal defensive force, that's not true of the bank robber, right? If the bank robber were to shoot the security guard and then was arrested and put on trial, we don't think the bank robber could offer as a defense of her actions that she needed to shoot the security guard because the security guard posed a threat to her life. And what that suggests to us is that it's not merely posing a threat to another that justifies the use of defensive force. It's uh, having a just cause, right? A sufficient moral justification for posing a threat to another. And somebody who lacks that, who lacks that just cause for posing a threat, has no right to use defensive force, has no right to kill someone else. So let's then extend that to our thought about uh, war. Well, if we have a conflict between two parties, and let's suppose, this is not always true, but let's suppose that one of the parties has a just cause for war and the other doesn't. Well, then it looks like our position, at least morally, should be uh, that those combatants fighting for the just side, the side with the just cause for war, are morally permitted to kill enemy combatants, whereas that is not the case for combatants fighting on the side of a state without a just cause for war, a party without a just cause for war. So now we have an asymmetry. And that means now we've got a difference between the morality of war and the law of war and a conflict because the law of war treats the killing of enemy combatants symmetrically. It says all combatants are permitted, we'll come back to that, but are permitted to uh, kill enemy combatants, whereas the morality of war says only combatants with a just cause for war are permitted to kill enemy combatants. Do these revisionist just war theorists think we should change the law of wars? So surprisingly, uh, most of them do not, right? So most of them having argued that as a, as a matter of the morality of war, only combatants with a just cause, which, which we'll call just combatants, have a right to kill enemy combatants. But uh, combatants without a just cause for war lack that right. They don't think the law of war ought to be reformed to reflect that fact. And there's several reasons why that is, right? So, so one is, I think, actually pretty straightforward. Even were we to reform the law of war so that it had two sets of rules, one set of rules for just combatants, one set of rules for unjust combatants, just about every combatant is going to believe that they are waging war with a just cause. So in practice, everybody would be following the rules for just combatants, and no one would be following the rules for unjust combatants. And if our concern with the law is that people should use it as a guide for conduct, right, to figure out what they should and shouldn't do, uh, well, then it, it seems kind of beside the point, impractical, to uh, adopt a kind of two-tier or two sets of rules uh, for the law of war. But secondly, a lot of revisionists have a particular view about um, what the purpose of the law is, and it includes or is centrally concerned with helping people to act as they morally ought to act. 
Now, sometimes the law can do that simply by publicly communicating what morality requires of us. But in other cases, law actually helps us conform to the demands of morality by substituting its judgment for what we ought to do for our own judgment. Right? So in some cases, we're actually going to do better at acting as we ought to morally by following the law than by trying to figure out for ourselves what morality requires. Now, that might seem a little strange, but it's worth thinking through some of the reasons why that is. And one of them is that our moral judgment is often predictably biased in ways that lead us to actually misconstrue what we're morally permitted to do. And so let me give you just a common sense uh, example. If we were left to our own devices, many of us may overestimate how good we are at driving. And so we would drive at speeds on specific roads that would pose a morally unjustifiable level of risk of harm on other drivers and pedestrians. Right? We, just, we just know that about ourselves as human beings. And so in order to protect ourselves against our own biased judgments here, right, we substitute the law's determination of what the safe speed is on the road, that's the speed limit, uh, for our own judgment. And we can extend that same kind of reasoning to war. Right? So if you think about the kind of stresses that combatants are uh, often under in a war, uh, and certainly in a combat zone, and we think about how reliable the moral judgments are likely to be that they form um, when under those pressures, we can see that we'll actually enable combatants to better act as they morally ought to by deferring to the rules the law sets for who they may target and who they may not target than by acting on their own judgment. There's one other reason why I think revisionists are hesitant to, to reform the law of war so that it has the same content as what they think the morality of war has, and that is that maybe it's a mistake to say the law of war permits combatants on all sides of a conflict to kill enemy combatants. Instead, maybe we should understand the law is saying only that as long as a combatant limits herself to targeting or killing, injuring enemy combatants, she commits no criminal act. That is, she does nothing that uh, warrants being punished. So most revisionists, just war theorists, think combatants will do better at acting morally if they use the law of war as a guide for their conduct instead of the morality of war. Your example of the legal speed limit raises the possibility that in some cases, actors may exercise better judgment than the law does. Yes, that's right. That's right. And uh, so, so revisionists, I think, following their, their reasoning to its uh, logical conclusion, um, do concede that in rare cases, uh, it may be morally permissible to violate the law of war. But they attach three important caveats to that concession. Right? So the first is, precisely for all those reasons uh, we have to believe that our moral judgment will be biased um, and inaccurate, suboptimal, when we are under the pressures of combat, any combatant, right, any soldier, sailor, marine, airman, who is considering an act that violates the law of war would need to be very, very confident uh, in their moral judgment, precisely because they should know all these reasons why their judgment is likely to be mistaken. So that's the, the first caveat. The second is that um, in thinking about whether to commit a violation of the law of war, combatants also need to be attentive to the example that they're going to set for others. So even were it the case that a violation of the law of war in this particular case um, would be morally permissible, if it's also likely to lead other combatants to violate the law of war when that's not permissible, when that's not the morally appropriate thing to do, um, then on balance, that is all things considered, it might still be the case that our combatant ought to adhere to the law of war. And finally, 
even if you're morally justified in violating the law of war, the revisionists will say, as soon as you commit such an act, you should immediately right, submit yourself to the judgment of some impartial third party, right? So that might be some type of court or uh, superior officer. And again, the idea is, right, to have some kind of check on the possibility of exercising bad moral judgment. And furthermore, it might be that were somebody submitted to, say, a court-martial for having committed a violation of the law of war or some kind of international tribunal, that that tribunal should find the person guilty and impose a type of sanction on that person, even though uh, the person was morally justified in having violated the law. And again, that has to do with the kind of further consequences of not sanctioning that person, which would be people violating the law when they really ought not to do so. So one thing we see on this channel quite often is that there's a lot of gray out there. And this topic clearly demonstrates all of the nuances between the law of war and the morality of war. Professor David Lefkowitz, thanks a lot for joining us on Ethics in the Naval Warrior. Absolutely my pleasure, Michael. Thank you for the opportunity. You've been listening to Ethics in the Naval Warrior, a series of podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. You can hear more podcasts at stockdalecenter.com slash podcasts.